Podcastle, episode 283, for October 23rd, 2013. Right Turns by Tim Pratt. Rated, well, I'm going to call it PG because it lacks anything explicit, but this one isn't for the faint of heart. Hello and welcome back to Podcastle. I'm Dave Thompson. Today, we're taking you down a long, twisted path into one of the most disturbing and horrifying journeys in life, a descent into madness. I'm talking, of course, about home ownership. As somebody who's spent the last eight months of my life living in a place that wasn't my home, out of my house, I feel like I can say this with some authority. We've been remodeling our house, which, well, in the end, it'll probably feel like a good thing, but... I'm not being hyperbolic in saying that I think the way we decided to do this was maybe the biggest mistake of my life. You have meetings and planning sessions. You think you know what you're getting into. Then, you're thrust into the labyrinth, unsure which way to go. Every corridor seems dark and ominous, and there's a good chance there might be some kind of monster just around the next corner. Podcastle's very proud to present Right Turns by Tim Pratt, originally published in Faultline. We told Tim Pratt he had 25 words for an author bio, and this is what he wrote. Tim Pratt is a brilliant, 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 brilliant author. Okay. Well, I'll just add he's published a lot of stuff here at Podcastle, recently with The Secret Beach, which was a favorite around here last year. Our reader this week is Marguerite Croft. If you like her narration here, you may want to check out her reading of Tim Pratt's novel, The Strange Adventures of Ranger Girl, available now at audible.com. So grab your sleeping bag and backpack, head down to the basement, and enjoy the story. Right Turns by Tim Pratt Read by Marguerite Croft Before we go any farther, the realtor said, there's something that, legally, I have to disclose about the property. My husband, who had been gazing in delight up at the vintage brass chandelier on the ceiling, lowered his eyes. I turned away from the delicate stained glass pane in one of the windows, depicting a bare-chested man standing in a field of what I assumed must be red flowers to look at her. The realtor was perhaps a decade older than us, in her forties, with pale blonde hair and lots of laugh lines. But she wasn't laughing now. We already know it's a registered historical building, I said, that we can't put up aluminum siding or add turrets or balconies or anything, that would change the way it looks from the outside. Ah, uh, no, the realtor said, fiddling with the vase of yellow and blue flowers on the mantelpiece. This is something inside. It's black mold, my husband said. Octuple homicide, I offered. Nothing like that, she said. You probably didn't notice it during your earlier walkthrough, but there's a door in the basement. You can see where it used to be bricked up, 
but it's open now, and it, uh... She sighed. It leads to the labyrinth. I exchanged a glance with my husband. I know. I keep calling him my husband. He had, has, a name, of course. It's just that I no longer remember it. I remember his eyes and the way he smelled after working in the garden for a while and how much I loved surprising him into laughter. I have not lost everything. The labyrinth, he repeated. Well, let's go see it. It didn't look like much. Perhaps if we could have seen it from above, the labyrinth would have seemed vast, intricate. But from the ground, it looked like nothing but a hallway with stone walls eighteen feet high, and after ten or twelve feet, the hallway split into four hallways and branched off in asymmetrical directions. And when we took the rightmost corridor, it branched off into five more hallways. And that's as far as the realtor was willing to go without breadcrumbs or a spool of thread to mark our path. So we came back to the basement and stood by the washing machine. But that's clearly a maze, my husband said. Not a labyrinth. Common mistake. A maze has many branching paths, some leading to dead ends, while a labyrinth has only a single path to the center, though it can be long and twisty. The realtor shrugged. I'm just telling you what I was told, and I was told it's a labyrinth. She frowned. Anyway, wasn't the original labyrinth, the one from the story about the Minotaur, supposed to be almost impossible to escape? If it only had a single path, wouldn't it be easy? Wouldn't the Minotaur just walk out and eat everybody? Oh, my husband said. Right. Maybe the words used to mean something else. Anyway, the realtor shrugged again. Labyrinth, maze, whatever, it's here. It comes with the house. We don't know what's inside it. There could be rats, spiders, even that black mold, who knows. Talk about it, and let me know if it's a deal-breaker. We talked, in our tiny apartment, with the kitchen so small we couldn't even pass each other on the way to the refrigerator, with our pipes that howled and clanked when we tried to turn on the hot water. I'd just gotten a promotion, and though it meant less teaching and more administrative work, there was also more money coming in. The housing market was good for buyers. There were a lot of great places to choose from, but none we liked more than the labyrinth house. I don't see the downside, my husband said, leaning against me companionably in bed. Really, the whole thing is just more space. Square footage we're not even paying for. The labyrinth could be extra storage, even. What if there are bugs? Rats? Then we brick up the entrance. Looks like it's been done before, so we can do it again. We bought the house. We moved in. We didn't go into the basement often, just to do laundry. And we didn't go into the labyrinth at all. Not at first. I'm not sure when my husband started his explorations. I didn't find out for a while. 
There are a lot of things from those first months I don't remember. The walls are too high, he said abruptly at dinner one night. Provencal-style chicken stew. I'd spent three hours making it, served with crusty fresh bread from the bakery and a nice green salad. Funny how I remember the food when so much else is lost. In the labyrinth, I mean. The walls are nearly twenty feet high. They should be poking up into the first floor, into the bathroom, shouldn't they? They're higher than the basement ceiling. Maybe the ground slopes downward. I didn't pay that much attention. And maybe the walls aren't as high as we thought. No, they're eighteen feet. I measured. When did you measure? I asked, surprised. We hadn't talked about the labyrinth. We hadn't talked about it so much. It was almost like we talked about it and made a decision not to talk about it. And the ceiling. What's with the ceiling? It's so black, but it's not stone. It's like there's no texture, like it's a sky, or... He tore off a chunk of bread with his teeth and chewed, staring up at our dining room ceiling. Beautiful pressed tin with a floral pattern, which matched the carvings on the baseboards and the moldings. One of my favorite things about the house. Flowers everywhere. I just want to see what's in there, and how deep it goes. My husband pulled on his big backpack, the one we'd used when we'd hiked the Appalachian Trail the summer after college, and that we'd hardly used since, being too busy with work for camping. I mean, it can't go very far, or it would leave our property. If it can't go very far, I said carefully, why do you need all that equipment? I knew his face so well back then. He looked embarrassed, sheepish. I, uh, I've gone in a few times, not far, but it seems pretty big, I guess. Probably not so big, probably just passageways curling and curving in a small space, creating the illusion of distance. But I'd feel better with some supplies. Even if I decide to spend the night in there, I'll come back in the morning. I've got chalk to mark the walls so I won't get lost. And it's not like I'll be camping out. It's in our house. I'll have my cell phone, if you need me. I nodded, even though we barely got cell reception in the basement proper, let alone in the labyrinth. The truth was, I didn't mind the idea of a night to myself. I could stream one of the movies he never wanted to watch. He hated reading subtitles and was squeamish about horror. Open a bottle of wine, really sprawl out on the couch. I kissed his cheek and told him to have fun spelunking. He did return the next morning, exhausted, eyes rimmed in a red. What did you find in there? I said, pouring him a cup of coffee. He looked away, and when he took the cup, his hands were trembling. I thought he was just tired. Nothing. Corridors. They all dead end after a while. Pretty boring, really.
The next day, he left without telling me, while I was at work. This time, he took all the camping equipment, tent, camp stove, fishing tackle, and all the biggest knives from the kitchen. I called his phone and got no answer. I stood in the doorway to the labyrinth and called his name. I thought it was strange that there was no echo. After he'd been gone two days, and the police refused to believe me about the labyrinth, they thought my husband had just left me, that I was crazy. I called the realtor, hoping for some corroboration. What are you talking about? A labyrinth, the realtor said. There's a full-finished basement, but... I didn't argue with her. That was my first hint of the labyrinth's power of forgetting. Can you tell me anything, I said at last, about the people who used to live here before? Sorry, the realtor said. It was before my time. But someone must have lived here, right before we did. The house was clean when we moved in, no dust, no mustiness. There were new appliances, and the kitchen was recently renovated. Who used to own the house? What happened to them? She was quiet for a long time. I don't remember, she said. I'll look in the file and call you back. But she never called back. And when I got in touch with her again the next day, she didn't remember our earlier conversation at all. I guess she didn't need to. The labyrinth had wanted her to show us its existence, I think. It wanted us to choose to move in, even knowing. But once we were here, it didn't want anyone else to know anything anymore. Or perhaps the labyrinth is just walls, just stone and the spaces between stones, and it doesn't want anything. Perhaps whatever lives at the center of the labyrinth is the thing that wants things. I filled a backpack, much smaller than my husband's, with food and water and supplies and extra flashlight batteries, and set off into the labyrinth. At first there were chalk marks on the walls, sometimes arrows, sometimes just slashes and pale blue. I followed those for a long time, but eventually, after maybe hours, maybe days, the clock on my phone stopped working quickly, the chalk marks stopped, and I found a tiny stub of chalk on the ground beneath the last one, worn down and crumbled into fragments. For a while after that, there were markings of old, dried blood. I assume he cut his finger with one of the knives he took. Then those stopped, too. The turning after the place, where my husband stopped trying to mark his passage, was where things began to change. The left side of that wall had a window, or rather a cut-out opening, high up, so that I could just barely see through if I got up on tiptoes. There was a little grassy courtyard beyond the window, with no visible means of entry. 
and a fountain in the center. And the fountain had a statue in the middle, so overgrown with ivy that I couldn't make out what it was supposed to be. I know you're wondering, how could grass grow in a basement or ivy? But the sun was shining in the courtyard. I tried to jump up, to climb through the window, but I couldn't make it, couldn't pull myself up. My husband wasn't in there anyway, so I kept walking. He took camping supplies and knives. I took a notebook and a handful of ballpoint pens. I don't know which of us made the better decision, but I wish I'd written more things down earlier. I would have, if I'd realized how much I would forget along the way. I had to choose my turnings blindly, after the chalk and the blood ran out. I tried to think of what my husband would do. I took only right turns, because he was an engineer, and that seemed like an engineerish thing to do, methodical, standardized. I found ramen noodle wrappers after a while, and the places where the stone walls were stained with fresh urine, and other remnants of his passing. So I knew then that I knew my husband as well as I thought I did. We were in love. After fifteen years of marriage, it wasn't as passionate as it had once been, that's all. We had our own separate lives, too, our own interests. But our days and nights were intertwined, like two trees with their branches grown together, until you can't tell where one begins and the other ends, which flowers belong to which branch. I think he thought he was going to come back soon. I think he thought he wouldn't be gone long. I think I believe that. Once I knew I could never find my way back, once I stopped thinking about routines of return, the labyrinth became more open. There were benches, sometimes, and little courtyards, ones I could actually reach, though none with sunshine. That doesn't mean there was no light, though. Suddenly everywhere there was light, blue moss on the walls, glowing, almost bright enough to read by. Sections of the walls became shining crystals, white and pulsing. And now, sometimes, moonlight shines down from the sky, though I never see the moon, no matter how hard I look. I am writing these words by moonlight. It is more pleasant than writing in the dark, hoping my words are in straight lines and not sprawling wildly up and down the page. I feel more in control when I can see the straight lines. It's easier to walk in the light. Sometimes down the left-hand passageways, I hear chimes, or the sound of wind, or the sound of laughter. A child's laughter is a terrifying thing in a labyrinth, and I think, would he have gone that way 
Would he have changed his course? I don't think so. I always go right. I always find some mark of his passing. I am always right when I always go right. But what exactly is it I'm right about? After I ran out of water, I drank from a bubbling fountain in a white courtyard. And as soon as the water slid down my throat, I forgot my husband's name. After that, I couldn't call out his name anymore as I turned right, right, always right. I made the connection pretty quickly between the water and my memories. But when you're thirsty, you have to drink. There are broken fountains, too, and the water in them is placid, not moving, not flowing. And that water doesn't make you forget, as far as I can tell. I fill my bottles from those pools when I find them, but they never last, and unfortunately, most of the fountains work. Still, after what must be all this time... I remember I used to teach, but I don't remember what I taught. I seem to know a lot about flowers and poems and fluid mechanics, which are all equally useful here. The fruit seems safe to eat, unless it's doing something to me that I don't understand. There are fish in some of the reflecting pools. They reflect nothing but the black starless sky. Big ones, like overgrown goldfish with watchful eyes. I think they feed on the nuts that fall from the trees. I think I could catch those fish with my bare hands if I wanted. I find the remains of fires sometimes, and fish bones. So I know my husband eats them but I am afraid to try. What if? I have never yet been that hungry. Sometimes I pick up the bones from the remnants of dead fires and hold them to my nose and breathe in, hoping for... What? Perhaps to scent a trace of his breath, but all I ever smell is death and ashes. I thought I heard singing last night. I ran and ran toward the sound, and it got farther and farther away. It could have been a man singing in a falsetto voice, as my husband used to sing in the shower, sometimes. Or it could have been a woman, or a child, or a clever bird. Right, right, right. The labyrinth hasn't branched in some time. It goes on straight for as far as I can see. And that's worse, somehow, than the earlier infinite splits and turnings. He must not know I'm looking for him. Otherwise, he would stop. Otherwise, he would wait for me to catch up. He must know I'm looking for him. Wouldn't he have come looking for me?
I'm at the end of that long corridor now. A passageway so long I must be under the next town by now. Or the next state. There is another division here. Another branch of possibility. Where this long hallway intersects another corridor. The new path runs perpendicular to the first. So I am at the intersection of the T. I can go left. Or I can go right. I start to take the same old turn, the one I've taken ten thousand, thousand times. But then I pause, I look, and I listen. From the right, I think I hear singing. From the left, I think I smell flowers. Left, right, am I right? Have I been left? I knelt and arranged my dead flashlight batteries into an arrow because I love him, even if I can't remember his name, pointing in the line of my new direction. Yes, there are flowers. They grow in the sun. And welcome back. We all have labyrinths that we spend our lives navigating, I think. Strange, unknowable journeys. How do we measure our progress? We may not mark the wall of every turn with a chalk mark, or always turn right. Maybe we punch a clock, or blog, or get up every morning uncertain which direction the journey will take. Hopefully, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. My family and I are hoping to move back into our house the first week in November. Personally, I'm happy to have this labyrinth behind me. Before we get into feedback, a word on our fundraiser and our plea for help here at Escape Artists. Since the Metacast went live, we've had an incredible, huge, overwhelming response from a lot of you. So first, on behalf of all of us here, let me say thank you. This initial round of support from our listeners has truly rocked us. We've almost doubled our number of subscribers and received a lot of one-time donations. It's all greatly appreciated, and if you have the funds to throw in a couple of bucks each month, that'd be a huge help. Whether it's $2, $5, $10, $20, you can shoot our way helps. Thank you so much. What you're doing is helping us bring the best in fantasy fiction to you every week in the year 2014. We've got some big plans for this upcoming year, and we'll be back with you very soon to explain how we're going to make it all work moving forward. Here's a little bit about some people who have donated. Rachel and Jason Jones. Rachel is a student and research assistant studying literacy in elementary schools, as well as working on a second degree in speech-language pathology. Jason teaches high school English, working primarily with kids with severe emotional and behavioral disorders, which he loves. Rachel also goes by Varda on our forum, and she was one of the first people to respond to our call for help, and said this, 
Since I'm a near-broke student on a research assistant salary, I'm justifying it to myself by thinking of it like this. Once a month, I'm buying escape artists a beer. Hey, that seems like a pretty healthy attitude to me. Thanks. Thank you both so much for your support. I, for one, am definitely going to be marking off Athens, Georgia on a map with a chalk mark so I can collect on that beer. Feedback this week is for Amal Al-Motar's A Hollow Play, read by Tina Connolly, a story about cabaret, sacrifice, and friendship. Danuli said, The reveal that Paige chose to cut ties with Emily and was seemingly living happily without her best friend literally floored me as I sat down on my kitchen floor when I heard that. Without going into details, I am the page to my childhood best friend's Emily. I cut off all ties with her, even knowing that action would be hurtful because of a toxic turn our relationship took. I don't quite feel guilty enough to reestablish a friendship, but it certainly dredged up some interesting emotions. I'm so, so happy that Emily and Anna have each other. Tina Connolly is one of my favorite narrators, and this story just adds to her awesomeness. Paired with the beauty of Amal Motar's writing, makes this really special. Dream 6601 said, Oh my god, I was supposed to be at work early today, and I was listening to the story in the car on the way to work. Next thing I know, the story is over, and I'm in the parking lot. I can't even go in because I'm just sitting there crying. About the past, and friends, and lost opportunities, and... I'm going to have to listen to the outro again. I didn't even hear it. I want to say more about this story, but I just can't. I don't even know how to speak of it. I dearly love that this story dealt with trans characters without it being a trans story. Awesome. And Evergreen Monster summed up a lot of our listeners' thoughts by posting, This story was pretty cool, but can we please talk more about feet? Well, yeah, sure, I guess. Mine are strong and... A little rough, but big, and I painted my toenails with, oh, Evergreen Monster meant the character's bird feet. Got it. Whoops. Well, uh, this seems like a pretty good time to say that was our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it, and on behalf of all of us here at Podcastle, Anne Leckie, LaShawn Wanick, Peter Wood, Anna Schwind, and myself, thank you so much for letting all of us share another story with you. Podcast is published by Paul Herring, and we'll be back in one week with the final tale for Halloween, a short, sweet October witch, courtesy of Francesca Forrest. Until then, this is Dave Thompson reminding you to check that fine print. Right? Left? In the meantime, happy trails. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnitude.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend or post to your blog about it or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Our closing quote this week is from John Green, who wrote, You spend your whole life stuck in the labyrinth, thinking about how you'll escape in one day, and how awesome it will be, and imagining that future keeps you going, but you never do it. You just use the future to escape the present. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.
ocean of measureless qualities, in an ocean of joy, our most cherished and long felt desire. Let the might of your compassion arise to bring a good end to the flowing stream of the blood and tears.